Hello, Internet, and welcome back to the second and final uh, part of our two-part series about Americans doing American things. Our first episode was about Barbie, and of course, the second episode in this series, none other than the Heimer part of Barbenheimer, Oppenheimer, uh, brought to us by Christopher Nolan, starring Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt. They say Matt Damon third, but it should be Robert Downey Jr. This cast card is kind of weird at times when they, they list these things off. Uh, but returning, reprising her role as guest, a uh, special guest on the podcast, Kristen Pignola. Kristen, how are you doing? I know I just butchered your last name. That's okay. You know, you butchered it in a new and fun way. So <laughs> it's not it's not one that I've heard. So. It's okay. Good I've job. been his co-host for a decade and he still doesn't know how to pronounce Wassenaar. He has never once gotten it right. <laughs> it's fantastic. Oh. See, here's oh the God. thing with my brain, right? I have a I have a pretty good like memory. <laughs> like I can bring stuff up pretty well, but once it's embedded in there, it's never changing. It's mm-hmm. never fucking changing. So Chase Wassener. It's close. Closer. Almost. (laughs) (laughs) This is just Chase getting back at me for bringing up that you had been on the podcast before, Kristen. So, Chase, how are you doing this evening? (laughs) Look, I'm doing well. And look, I'm going to let you off the hook a little bit because uh, our good friend, uh, Devin, not pronounced Pyrotechnics Young, is a name that I've mispronounced every time I've ever worked with him. So, you know, we all have our quirks. Uh, It's just... uh, it is a joy to be here for this particular episode because this is one that, as soon as I saw it, I, I knew I was going to be in for a treat of a podcast because, you know, the last two films that we've reviewed, Walter, I've given a 10 out of 10. I have been very elated by the current state of uh, popular films that have come out recently. And I was a little worried, perhaps. I was going to be off my game. I'd lost my critical edge. And then I watched Oppenheimer. I'm not worried about that anymore. So I'm excited to talk about that with you today. <laughs> Fantastic. The shortest episode in Rough Draft's uh, Final Cut history. We're all giving it 10 out of 10s. Uh, come back next week. I think we're watching something to do with pizza. And until then, goodbye, Internet. <laughs> What's what, what's, what are y'all watching next week? Uh, you know, uh, I can't give some... it away. <laughs> oh, <laughs> fine. Okay. You got to tease them to get them to come back. No, you guys aren't. Got you guys it. aren't going to let me get away with only a three-minute-long podcast on this movie. And uh, considering it's three hours long, I think only giving it three minutes would be a disservice to it. Um, but that being said, you guys have, have granted me the, the opening few minutes here to go on a little rant. Um, because all three of us saw this movie in IMAX. And I'm going to be very honest with you. I don't remember the last time I saw a movie in IMAX. Chase... It honestly might have been The Revenant. Oh, boy. A, a film and, you loved so much, famously. You know, in the moment, I fucking despised it. In the moment sense that I have caught it on TV, on cable television that I haven't paid for, eh, it's not bad. I understand why Leo won an Oscar. But in the moment, spending $40 on tickets and snacks and everything, fucking hated that movie. But that being said... I waited for Chase to see the movie first. I asked him, hey, do I need to go see this in IMAX? And he said, yeah, you should probably go see it in IMAX because literally everyone else on the planet is seeing it in IMAX. I was, okay, I'll go see it in IMAX. 
Uh, so I had a coupon from my double screening of, of Barbie with my myself and my partner. I had a little $5 coupon. And I uh, I had a Sunday available, right? My partner was going to be out of town doing a family thing. So I was like, cool, I'll go on Sunday. So I go on to the Fen the uh, Fandango app and I, I check out Sunday and uh, all the seats available for all the showings from like 10 a.m. Because uh, there's only one IMAX theater near me from like 10.30 until like 4.30 are all front rows. There's there's nothing available other than front oh. row. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, I can't see it on Sunday then. Well, I still got Monday and Tuesday. Let me take a look. So Monday morning at 10.45 in the morning, <laughs> I hopped into my local IMAX and I sat there for three and a half hours. I had to sit through a fucking Blair Witch Project advertisement, which once again... Thanks, movie industry. I love horror movies. I, I love so much that you place them with R-rated movies. And you know what, Chase? They're even better in just ridiculous surround sound. That just, like, thumping piano theme from Blair Witch is now embedded in my skull for the remainder of time. Um, I fucking hate IMAX. I This was fucking miserable. I hated the experience. Um, the chairs don't recline. It's way too loud. It gave me a migraine. Why do people go see IMAX? Like, genuinely. Ge someone explain to me why you go see a movie at IMAX. Chase, do you have any idea? Um, I mean, I will say, uh, I... So I have AMC stubs because I live in Los Angeles and I'm the, this is the second time I'm plugging my Los Angeles theater here. So <laughs> you can tell I've really gone off the deep end nowadays. Um, but... He's an LA I'm an guy. LA guy. Uh, put on sunglasses. Three, two, one. Uh, no, but look, AMC Stubbs makes sense for me because it's twenty five dollars a month, and an individual ticket is twenty dollars at this point because LA is insane. Mm -hmm. So for me, I got I got my IMAX upgrade for free. Like it didn't cost me a, a single extra dollar to go see it in IMAX instead. So I just got to take advantage of the uh, sharper quality. Uh, my chair is still reclined just fine um, because my theater is big enough to have room for that. Uh, and uh, the sound design was really, really cool for this film. Uh, I know we'll get to more detail on that in a second, but I, I think IMAX could only help in that regard. So um, I can't say I relate, but I also didn't pay up for the experience, which I do think changes the variables. Oh, oh, oh no, 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 no. My ticket was $8. <laughs> okay. My ticket was only $8. Sounds like it a, was only $8. Sounds like a you problem, Walter. <laughs> Maybe it is, but you know what? I'm the old man. No, on no, this I'm podcast, totally. So I get to no, yell. No, I at the am class. also with you. I am also with you. I. My eyes cannot take it. I also get headaches pretty easily when my um, eyesight is like confronted with that much um, unbroken space mm -hmm. in a way. Um, so it's not my primary preferred viewing experience, I'll say. Uh, but if I was going to watch any movie in IMAX, I think Oppenheimer is, is, a, is a good shout. And, and I, I will agree with that point. And I think that's the only reason I even entertained uh, the thought and actually did execute on that thought of seeing Oppenheimer in IMAX was because of Chase's recommendation, the recommendation of literally everyone that I follow on Twitter that had seen the movie. Yes, it's Twitter. I refuse to call it X. It's Twitter. We're just going to keep calling it Twitter, guys. Um, but that being said, Chase, I know you kind of mentioned here a brief moment ago about you were very excited for this because, you know, 
you kind of knew we were going to get to podcast about it. And I'm pretty sure the moment I saw this movie was announced and there was a trailer for it, I like texted you as like, yo, we're, we're fucking seeing this movie. And the entire time you've kind of been like, really, really? You, you want to, you want to see this movie? Um, what were your expectations going into it? You know, a film that I, I think you kind of warmed up to by the time you saw it, but I, I was kind of convincing you to go see well, here's my thing, Walter. Uh, it's twofold. One, I'm not a big Christopher Nolan guy. I didn't see uh, Interstellar. Uh, Dunkirk, fine. I didn't have any problems with it. Didn't love it. Dark Knight Rises, I hated. Man of Steel, uh, he's only a producer on, but obviously not my favorite thing. Inception hasn't aged particularly well, and Tenet was trash. So there's a, since, since The Dark Knight, I have struggled with Christopher Nolan, um, and I think there are some problems that he has, problems that appear in this film uh, that we'll get to later in this podcast that uh, turn me off of uh, being interested in uh, some of the, the things that he's done. And I also don't tend to like three-hour biopics, or biopics in general, to be quite honest with you. Uh, biopics always carry this additional weight to them because as soon as you're making something about a real story i have to start caring about the facts as they are right you're trying to portray something in the reality in which it stands and i think there are some criticisms that are fair and unfair in that regard that will always come up when a biopic about a particularly sensitive topic comes up but you can't not think about these things right it, it matters um, that you're telling a story in a way that is accurate to what actually happened and that you're able to portray a point of view that is reasonable um, and understandable. And biopics to that end become more work for me than they are just pure enjoyment of a film because that part matters to me. Um, but that said, it became very clear very quickly that this was just becoming a uh, moment, a zeitgeist culturally. Uh, within our like everyone was talking about it i couldn't get away from the discourse on it and this is the kind of film that i will say if you're the kind of person that listens to a film podcast you should go see it because you should have an opinion on this film i think it is it is important enough to the cultural conversation uh within american cinema uh that it is worth having an opinion on this uh wherever you come down on it so those were my concerns going in um, but they certainly, uh, as you said, did not stop me from eventually getting on board with seeing it when it became clear that this was the kind of thing that I needed to see if I was going to call myself a film critic in any meaningful sense of that word. What about Chase, you, Kristen? Well, uh, Chase, just before we get to Kristen, just two things real quick. One, I want to tell you that I appreciate the fact you waited until 10 minutes and 30 seconds to bring up the word zeitgeist. I was afraid the podcast was getting a little <laughs> bit too liberal arts. Uh, so I, I appreciate that, you know, holding back on utilization of the SAT words. Um, but it's also funny that you find that like the fact finding afterwards is just like tedious and more work because I actually really enjoy sort of the articles that, you know, and Twitter threads that kind of crop out of these, you know, whether they're biopics or discussions of historical events that sort of teach you the truth or go, well, this was embellished or this or that. And, and that's kind of interesting to me. And, and Kristen... You have a, a history degree, and, and I know we have discussed semi-casually in the past 
that you have sort of a background in World War II, uh, particularly the Pacific theater when it comes to that degree. So what were sort of your expectations? Were you sitting there with a pen and paper ready to pull out all the historical <laughs> flaws or? So this is a uh, great buildup. My, um, I, so yeah, I have a, a undergraduate degree in art history and modern history um, the modern history, uh, one of the courses that I took was on the Japanese Empire. Um, and I gotta say, I, this is just a part of me, just generally, like, I struggle with, sometimes with historical films, especially biopics, because of this issue that Chase is kind of touching on. Especially, like, biopics I have such an issue with because I think they really lean into kind of this great man of history trope that is just, um, I find very outdated and um, glosses over kind of what I find interesting about history. Um, so I wasn't like immediately drawn to seeing Oppenheimer because of those issues. And I, and you know, when you have a movie that is called Oppenheimer, and it's made um, by a Western director for a primarily Western audience, you're not going to, you're just not going to get the full story. Um, and that's something that we can talk about. And I'm sure we will. Um, but also Christopher Nolan as a director, um, I find very hit and miss. His hit for me is The Prestige. Oh my I really God. Love the Prestige. <laughs> I love The Prestige. Right. Um, I don't really care for his other films. You do not know how happy that makes me. Not that you don't care for his other films, but <laughs> somebody else loves The Prestige. That is that is like one of my... I love The Prestige. That is the only movie I have purchased from Amazon like digitally so that I could watch it because I couldn't find it on streaming anywhere. So I, I bought it so that I could watch it. And it, it's become like an airplane film for me. Like when, whenever I'm just yeah. like on an airplane, like, oh, I don't know what I want to watch. Oh, I can always pop on that movie. I, I find that film so fucking brilliant. I love it. Um, but I guess the, the, like the, the polar opposite of you two is that I actually really enjoy historical pieces and, and not biopics so, so much, but this particular era of American history, this sort of post civil war going into the 1900s, this world war one, great depression, world war two, you know, into modern times, Cold War era is, is, I love it. Some of my favorite movies are, you know, Enemy at the Gates, uh, Saving Private Ryan. Like, I, I love this kind of stuff. And it was, it was, it was a snap decision. I didn't care. You know, if Chase told me, I don't want to watch it, I don't want to talk about the podcast, I would have gone and saw this movie on my own anyways. So I was very kind of excited to see what this movie was about. Um, I, I love Christopher Nolan as a director. I love Presti the Prestige. I love the Dark Knight movies. Um, I, I I think highly of him as an actor or as a director in terms of what he does. You know, I I think there are certain movies that like Christopher Nolan could never direct. And I think there are movies that only Christopher Nolan can direct. And coming out of this film, I was very much in the, this is, at, at first I started with, this is only a film that Christopher Nolan could write. And then gradually, as I thought about it more over the last, you know, 48 hours or so, it's it's kind of settled into this is 
only a film that Christopher Nolan could have created. And I don't know, listener, we're 16 minutes in. You've heard all three of our kind of first entry points into this film. If you can't already kind of determine where we're going with it, I don't know how much more subtle we can be. But that being said, this discussion of the historical accuracy, because I will say that I went into this knowing there was going to be an accuracy, and in particular, knowing there is going to be no discussion about the consequences of creating the the nuclear bombs. There was not going to be any real discussion of what happened to Hiroshima and to Nagasaki. Um, I, I, I just kind of knew that, and I accepted that because, as Kristen, you so, you know, forwardly put, this is a Western film by a Western director for a Western audience. And as we've seen in the past with um, Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, Americans really don't like to discuss the negative things that we did Mm -mm. in the Pacific theater. So sort of beyond, I I guess let's touch on that first, the the sort of whitewashing of of what we did in, in Japan and sort of the consequences of that. I mean, we get the scene where they're they're talking with the projectors, but we don't see any pictures. We just hear these kind of vague details yeah. that are given. And and that kind of does tell you this film isn't going to be about that. It is definitely that scene especially is focused. I I don't know why I was surprised that they even like showed that bit. I was like, "Oh, okay, good for them." Um I just fully expected them to gloss over it. Um so there is that, but it is like, I I thought we would maybe see some images, but we really just stay on Killian Murphy's face. And, you know, th- this is a film about Oppenheimer. We're going to see Oppenheimer's reaction. We see a charred corpse that he steps in when he is um, kind of hallucinating, disassociating. Um, it's, it's not, it's that. It's that historical inaccuracy, but there are also other historical inaccuracies. And of course, with any historical film or like film based upon a true story, there are going to be inaccuracies, exaggerations, all that sort of thing. You know, there are the with how they chose the the where Los Alamos was where the project was going to be in Los Alamos, he makes reference to oh, um, the natives sometimes come here for their burials. And then at the end, it's like, um, oh, we'll give the land back to the Indians. And it's like, it was a lot different than that. People were actively dispossessed from that land. And the consequences from the Trinity test um, have had a lasting impact on the communities in that area. And... That to me, that was also incredibly disappointing. So, Kristen, you touched on something that I mentioned in the pre-call. I was going to go on a rant on. Um, so, I'm glad that you were already on top of it. Here, no, I, no, sorry. no, thank you. Because I'm glad that somebody else had the same kind of thought that I did on on how bullshit that was. Because I, I am of two minds of this, right? Um, when it comes to like actually seeing the nuclear bombs hit Japan. I actually think that it was good that we didn't see that 
Not because that story doesn't deserve to be told. It absolutely does. And there are a lot of Japanese films you can go watch right now that tell that mm-hmm. story and deserve your time and attention. I think the reason we don't get it in Oppenheimer is because he ultimately, his guilt is very selfish, right? He's not actually connecting with the pain that these people feel. He just wants the moral superiority that comes from feeling that way. He knew the damage it was going to cost. He had numerous chances in which he could have spoken up and done something about it, in which he would have been listened to and could have at least gone down saying, well, I did my best knowing that here is this thing that all of my scientist friends told me and was such an important part of, of explaining these things and just always backed down in the face of authority because he didn't actually have a problem with these things. Something that the kind of Red Scare uh, committee that ends up dismantling him does a great job of pointing out that those moral qualms about that he has about the H-bomb later in his career are not there beforehand, and he never fully reckons with it beyond how it affects him and his legacy, right? That's how, how it matters to him. And by not capturing that, we get to see the hollowness of his opinion on that, right? We see the hollowness of his perspective and how selfish it ultimately is. Whereas if we saw the bomb hit, then all of his points about how atomic bombs are bad, we would immediately jump to and agree with and be on his side on because we know they're bad and we would have just seen it, right? I think there's actually a genuine artistic point to be made of not showing that in terms of how it affects the hollowness of Oppenheimer. However... I think there's a big difference between choosing not to show something from an artistic perspective and fucking lying. And I'm really glad that you brought up the Los Alamos thing, because that is the thing that pissed me off the most in terms of the decisions that this film made. That's not choosing to cut something. That is them saying within the body of the film something that just straight up was not true and was parroted in like the New York Times. They said, yeah, this desolate land that had been abandoned. No, it fucking wasn't. 32 families lived on that plateau. They were given 48 hours to leave. Some of them were forced to leave at gunpoint. Their homes were bulldozed. Livestock was shot or let loose. Families were given basically no compensation whatsoever, and their lives were never the same. And his whole thing about, like, give it back to the Indians is hollow because of the damage that he willingly inflicted on those people, knowing that he did that in real life. But in the film... That comes off as a magnanimous thing for him to do because we don't see the fact that he enabled and encouraged the U.S. government to evict these people from their homes at gunpoint. That's a lie. That's not a creative choice. That's a lie. They created a false context for that in order to make a point more smooth and to avoid a very sensitive topic that should have been addressed. Because unlike the Japanese bombing and how the Japanese culture Uh, was affected by it and that impact, which is not part of Oppenheimer's story, his decision of how he affected the people at Los Alamos absolutely fucking is. And Christopher Nolan deserves to be criticized to Helen back for being a coward and not addressing that at all and paving over it like it wasn't a thing. That, I think, Mm -hmm. is a genuinely good criticism. And I will let you talk, Walter. Just one, I've got one point. If Oppenheimer really cared about the impact that that the bomb had on the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then he would care just as much as the effect that the Trinity test had on the people that lived in the area that have been affected from the fallout. Never once mentions it. It's always about him. So, so here's the, here's the interesting thing. I'm not going to say fun thing because there's nothing fun about, you know, displacing people from their homes 
for performing nuclear bomb testing that then has drastically affected people in the surrounding areas because there's no discussion about, you know, in, in that scene prior to the test. And now here we are, you know, two thirds in the movie about the weather in relation to like, well, are settlements downwind, like any of these things. They they primarily care about themselves and the people in the base and, and that are testing and more about the rain and whether that's going to prevent the testing. But that discussion about affecting the people that lived on that plateau and lived around the area and that were affected with nuclear radiation, uh, you know, caused diseases or long-term health costs was the first Twitter thread that I found like the day before the film came out. And I, I really tried to avoid some of those things because I didn't want to go into the film with these like preconceived notions of like, okay, well, here are all the hysterical accuracies I'm looking for. I, I didn't want to do that because I knew they were going to be there and I wanted to find them after I viewed the movie and, and, and sort of, you know, was going to build any thought I had about the movie knowing I'm going to come out of this. There are going to be a bunch of things that I'm going to find out about Oppenheimer, about the Trinity test, all of these types of things that are then going to change my interpretation of the movie and will have me say, well, Christopher Nolan is lying or is purposely withholding the truth. And the effects on the people living around Los Alamos were, was the first thread that I came upon. And it was a very interesting deep dive. And then it led to, uh, I believe, right around the same time, uh, a representative from that part of New Mexico had gotten uh, additional funding into sort of into this like... Um, victims fund for uh you know like white sand people that worked at white sands lived around white sands um and there was this discussion about how the people around the trinity test had been specifically left out of those funds um mainly because they were mostly natives right they were they were native americans versus um you know white settlers or anything like that and chase i want to step back because you make this point about Oppenheimer's criticisms of the H-bomb or his guilt, everything is hollow. And I think if you come out of this film and you take that line about giving the land back to the natives and you go, oh, that's magnanimous, you're missing the entire point of the fucking film. And I think it comes back to this core thesis that I left it with of Oppenheimer is hollow. He is not a person with strong conviction in either way, shape, or form. And I think it's very telling that that Nolan and stays true to Oppenheimer kind of post uh post you know World War II. Oppenheimer in those committee meetings didn't even pretend that it was the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that convinced him atomic weapons were were bad. Right? He didn't go, I looked at all these victims and I looked at the consequences, and that's what convinced me that we needed nuclear proliferation. That's what convinced me that what I had created was a monster, right? He he exactly was like that. He couldn't explain why he was against the hydrogen bomb other than in the theoretical sense of he didn't think that it would work or that it was too complicated to work. It was this argument of fusion versus fission and that he thought his idea was the correct one because they had already proven it. And why would you waste all this time and energy in this other thing when we already have proof here? And if we pursue this other more dangerous thing, we're just forcing the Soviets to do it. I completely agree with you that that is hollow and they don't try to lie about that and have him say it was the, it was the aftermath of the, the bombings that convinced me that nukes are bad. It's not that at all. It's the threat to his, 
his his kingdom of being the father of the nuclear you know the nuclear bomb um which i think is very poignant and and i agree with you wholeheartedly that oppenheimer is hollow across the board and everything that he does including the very beginning of the film because we have to create this person, right? We have to give some background to him. We don't go all the way back to his childhood, but we go to his college kind of years and him being a professor at Berkeley and sort of him dancing around this idea of communism. He is very communist adjacent. He is very leftist, right? He he is supportive of unions, but he's never willing to sign a communist party card. He's willing to give money to the you know the spanish civil war but he doesn't really want to give it to the communist party he more wants to give it to the the fighters over in spain directly he doesn't tr whether it's that he doesn't trust it or that he doesn't purely believe in it because it's all theoretical that's sort of what the movie tries to convince you of is that he is a man of theory he is not a man of principle yeah, I mean, there's, you know, obviously we're we're jumping around a little bit because with any, like with any biopic, right, the person that we come to know is unveiled through these pivotal moments in their life. Um, certainly in the opening, we get that immediate sense, right, when he poisons the apple of his teacher who embarrasses him at one point and then doesn't realize until the next day that maybe that was a bad move, Um and and ultimately not even because he thinks the poisoning his teacher was wrong, but because it could impact the life of, of someone he actually respects uh, and kind of panics about that. Um, but the the real thesis statement of Oppenheimer, I think, comes later on when he is uh, breaking down after of uh, uh, the Florence Pugh's character, Jean Tatlock, uh, the woman with whom he had an affair for a huge part of his life um, kills herself. Um, and he is kind of like leaves the, the facility and is uh, kind of freaking out in the, in the woods. And his wife, uh, once he unveils this to her, responds with, uh, in so many words, um, you're not allowed to commit the sin and then have people feel sorry for you for the consequences of your actions. And that is Oppenheimer in a nutshell. A guy who consistently throughout his entire life wants to take credit for the things that he did, but also have you feel sorry for him about the things that ultimately don't look great in the uh, broad scheme of things, right? Um, he wants to have all of the praise and none of the, the pushback that comes from that. Um, and I, I think that that scene does a really good job of highlighting that. Um, unfortunately, the first hour of the film is such a mess that it's hard to take in all of that. It's almost cut like an hour long trailer. Like we're constantly flipping between these framing devices, trying to kind of set the stage for what's coming, but also introduce all of these physicists, which let's be fair, not all of them needed to actually be introduced and then there's the weird scene in which mm -hmm. the I have become death destroyer of worlds first God. comes up as he's having... I will say... <laughs> yeah, you want to take that one, Kristen? Because what the fuck? <laughs> well, I was just going to say, um, the line... I it, it was spoiled to me that the line happened during a sex scene with Gene Tatlock. It did... I'll give it this. It did not happen in a way that I expected it. <laughs> so... That's true. But... That doesn't make it any better. How did she know that passage if she couldn't speak Sanskrit? Which she says that she's just like, no, read this one in specific. Like, 
what the fuck? <laughs> we're just gonna, we're gonna let it. Yeah, I am. Oof. Oof-a-doofa. <laughs> Oof-a-doofa. Sorry. No, Chase, it's, it's clearly, it's kismet. It's fate. She opened it to the right page it's, and she just wanted him to read that page. And right. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, to be the right page. I'm sure that's how it went down for sure. A hundred percent. It's not hilariously on the nose. No. I don't know, Chase, were you there? I, I guess I wasn't. <laughs> were you in the room? <laughs> I, were you in the closet? I, I will say this. Sorry. I think he should have stuck with Gene Tatlock. Much more fun uh, person than the wife he ends up. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess I wanted to talk about this. Go for it. Um, Christopher Nolan really can't write women. Oh. I think we can see that kind of as a through line in his work. And um, we see it here. Uh, Gene is oof, um, not great, and it's like I feel I love Florence Pugh as an actress. I think she does great work. Um, this gave her nothing. I felt, um, and with Emily Blunt's character who plays Oppenheimer's wife, um, she's either got a baby in her hands or a drink, and uh, she's either exasperated or mad. That's those are the two emotions that she gets. We have to remember she's a drunk and they've got children, but she doesn't really want them. Yeah, it it does feel like the the female characters in this film are completely inconsequential. Even the physicist yeah. that is there they're trying to be like, oh, well, you shouldn't be near the radiation because what if you want to have kids someday? And it, it is very bizarre. I, I was discussing this with, a, with another uh, acquaintance of mine in that it is, it is incredibly outside of Christopher Nolan's repertoire to use like nudity and sex. Like we get multiple nude and sex scenes in this film, and and like yeah. thinking back to his other work, like I agree. Like one, okay, you're not going to see nudity necessarily in a PG thirteen. Like you're not going to see it in the Dark Knight. But like, yeah, he really never tries to use that as a trope. So the the moments he uses it in this film, obviously, you know the the sex scene with the quote, the him sitting in the committee room, and the yeah. visualization of him remembering his uh his affair and like the death glares that Emily Blunt mm. and Florence Pugh are giving each other. I I know I, I completely agree with you that Florence Pugh was not given much to work with, but I think it is very it speaks a lot to her ability as an actress, uh as an actor, that when she is on the screen, I am drawn to her and not just because she's naked yeah. in three quarters of it. Like she Well, has I don't presence. know. It's like she didn't have to, she didn't, I mean, there is a part of that sex scene where she didn't have to be naked, where they're just sitting in chairs naked, looking at each other and talking. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just a very bizarre, The that whole bit was just incredibly bizarre to me and did, did not work for me, personally. No, and, you know, it's so, you really have to ask, like, what are the motivations of these female characters compared to the amount of time and energy we spend on some of these male physicists who ultimately do not impact the film in much of a meaningful sense. Um, 
and that's just Christopher Nolan's bias as as a filmmaker. It's always been a weakness of his, as, as you pointed out. And the film is certainly worse for it. I, I think that uh, between that and the first hour being just so uh, just back and forth uh, and stilted, there was a good part of this film in which I was not sure uh, what I was going to be able to take away from it in a positive sense. I, I do think the film gets better in a lot of ways after that first hour, but it never figures out how to give the female characters of this film a, a chance to have a real voice and to be um, integral parts of the story the way that um, they deserve to be. It, it, it feels like they are there for what, like one-liners, right? They're there yeah. purely to be, they, they are there to be props, right? Um, which, yeah, you could put a cardboard cutout of them. Yeah, which, which in various poses, which like sucks to say. And like, frankly, if you're looking at this fucking cast list, like there's three women in it. Like, if you're really staring at it, four, four women, four. Yeah, there's yeah, like there's four a sister-in-law <laughs> that he can't remember the name of. Yeah, does not bother to learn her name. Which, to be fair, Christopher Nolan wouldn't in real life either. But I, I think that's meant to be. An indictment of Oppenheimer. I, I mean, it's it's so, yeah, unfortunate, unfortunate. I think it's safe I, to say. I do think that that first hour, though, Nolan is trying to to do the humanization thing, right? They're trying to build the framework of what makes Oppenheimer tick. Because I think if you talk to any any normal person on the street prior to this film coming up, they might go like, "Yeah, isn't he the?" He, they might say, like, isn't he the guy that invented the nuke? Like, they, that's, like, the level you're going to get there. And, and with a biopic, you are trying to introduce your subject to your audience as a whole. Which, Chase, I find it so fascinating you're focusing on the first hour of the film when you're not focusing on the inclusion and, and the very large focus of Robert Downey Jr.'s Louis Strauss. Because at times, this feels like two different movies put together. It sure does. And and that's when the film starts mm -hmm. to turn around, right? Like you get this this twist from Robert Downey Jr.'s character in which we reveal the cynicism of his own position and the way in which he orchestrated the attack on Oppenheimer. And, you know, the part of this film that really rings true to me um, is the the part that is very much like dealing with the Red Scare side of it, right? How the U.S. used people's leftist beliefs as a way to dismantle their achievements in the name of the U.S. government and abandoned them uh, despite all of the work that they had, uh, had put in. Um, the way in which like, politics is a weapon to dismantle the uh, reputations of, of these people and the cynicism of how power is utilized to ultimately... Uh, settle petty disputes, right? Like uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, which Robert Downey Jr. does a brilliant job and he's going to deserve the supporting actor nod that the Oscars are going to give him in a few months. Um, but just this like absolute focus that he has on the idea that Oppenheimer soured Einstein on him when the reality is that they had more important things to talk about and he just isn't that important to their story. Um, that's a really clever twist of things and, and really well executed um, because ultimately the idea of politicians seeing themselves as so self-important that anything that is not in reference to them and 
going along with their interests is seen as uh, a slight against them is very much how our system is built. The the nature of, of people's political beliefs being used as a weapon to uh, dismiss them is something we're still seeing very much today, unfortunately. Um, and I think all of those points ring very true to uh, the time period in which the film takes place, the dynamics that defined that kind of post-World uh, War II era. And, um, you know, it, it is fitting that it is all weaponized against a person who truly did not believe in anything, right? You know, this was not someone mm -hmm. who was willing to stand up for the communist cause and make this big stand that maybe the government was wrong about these things. It's a guy who was always going to fold in exchange for power, and the government went after him anyway. Um, and I, I thought all of that was very good. Kristen, what about you? That was really well said. And yeah, I didn't struggle with that part of the film as much. I found it more interesting as a framing device. Robert Downey Jr., yeah, he'll he'll get the nom if not win. Um I just I think a lot of this film, um I said this in the pre-call. I don't know what it was. It just kind of glanced off of me. It, I could see. It's like I knew what it was trying to do. I kind of knew the emotions it wanted me to have at certain points. But I was not buying in to it. So even when Strauss kind of gets his comeuppance and he, and he doesn't get appointed to the cabinet. It still didn't give that um, sense of, yeah, like, some, some shitty person in this store, in this overarching story has gotten some form of comeuppance for their shittiness. Um, what you said, Chase, was very astute and nuanced, and I appreciate it. I don't have, I truly don't have anything to add to it. <laughs> it's me. I, I, I like that you bring like the comeuppance up because I don't think the comeuppance for either Oppenheimer, you know, getting railroaded uh, and, and just not given a security clearance and the, the, you know, the uh, Remy Malek's character, the, um, the, uh, the truth coming out that, you know, Louis Strauss is the one that, that, you know, demonized and helped destroy the career or if not destroyed, just pushed Oppenheimer over get the his, edge. Um, they are cathartic. Get his security clearance taken away. Yeah, none of those are actually cathartic. None of it feels cathartic. Because, you know, like, Oppenheimer is still Robert Oppenheimer. He's, he still is the father of the, the nuclear bomb. And you know that he was going to be invited to symposiums and to discuss things. And, and all across the board, it didn't matter whether he had security clearance or not. Those opportunities would have been lessened. But at the end of the day, he still would have got them. And you know, Louis Strauss, okay, so you don't get into the cabinet. You don't get your dream. Cool, you're going to go be a lobbyist. You're going to go work for some firm. You're still going to be a millionaire. And oh, well, you know, at some point, the, you know, you, did anybody know Louis Strauss's name before this movie? Did anyone know no. about him? Did anyone care about Louis Strauss? And like, now I am very curious. I am kind of curious to go see if I can't find some sort of um, 
you know, uh, nonfiction works about the railroading of Oppenheimer and, and the, you know, the, the very well-executed maneuver of not putting Oppenheimer in front of McCarthy. That, that moment, and again, we're in the last like 45 minutes of the film, but when, you know, Strauss is discussing, you don't stop Oppenheimer by giving him a stage. You do it in a dark back room with no audience is so, so well put and understands mm-hmm. so much how you deal with a, with a populist, with a demagogue. With someone that is so has such a high, ins, uh, highly inflated view of themselves that they know, like, sure, maybe I did something wrong, but because I have a stage and a microphone, I can convince people that I wasn't really all that wrong, and that who's smart enough, charming enough, and able to talk well enough that enough people will be swayed. Right. If there is a catharsis to be found in this film. I think it comes in the Einstein speech towards the end um, in which he talks about how Oppenheimer, you know, one day after all of this, they're mm-hmm. going to give you the same kind of recognition that they gave me. And you'll remember that you and all of your fellow scientists were talking about how I wasn't willing to go far enough, how I had lost touch. And so that wasn't for me. It was for you because you all needed to have that moment. And I want you to know that that's going to happen to you too. They're going to give you that medal and they're going to make this day about you, but it won't be about you. It'll be about them and cleansing their own conscious. And Oppenheimer goes into that ceremony at the end of his life, knowing exactly that it is exactly as hollow as Einstein told him that it would be. And it is one of the few times in which him getting this, what should be a crowning moment for him or what should be this moment of, of vindication after being persecuted by the U S government. It is as hollow as it should be because it's not about him and it not being about him is the harshest thing that you could possibly do much more than not giving him something at all. Because if you didn't give him anything at all, at least he would go to his grave saying I was right. They mistreated me and I deserved Mm -hmm. better. Getting that award removed power from him. Um, yeah. And I, I think that part of it's really well handled. Um, you know, obviously, I've gone on a lot of things that I think this film doesn't do well. And there's a lot that I, I wish had been done better. But it is a film that I do think gets a little bit better as it goes on. And moments like that are when it truly shows an understanding for Oppenheimer, the individual, and explains why Christopher Nolan wanted to do a three hour biopic about the man. I'm not sure that he should. I don't think the three hours was necessary to tell this story. I think a lot of time is wasted. And I think the pacing, especially in that first hour, is really poorly done. Mm -hmm. Um, A little bit more focus there could have gone a long way to make this film highlighted a little more. But that side of it, the parts that really dissect Oppenheimer as the person that he is and the clear flaws that that ego that he brings to everything leaves that's the part that will stick with me as the the parts that make this film worth paying attention to yeah i i agree with you there that moment with einstein was probably my favorite moment of the film i just wish we got more of them Mm -hmm. it is 
it is a moment where Oppenheimer is face to face with someone that he respects, right? Someone that he thinks incredibly highly of, and they are admonishing him, right? They're they're telling him the truth, and it is not a glowing truth, right? When Niels Bohr is rescued and they have him at Los Alamos <sighs> and uh, you know, Oppenheimer's asking him, you know, it's thinking, oh, he's going to join the team. And he's like, oh, no, like, th- this isn't mine. Like, this is your thing. And it- it's your job to, uh, you know, to-, to educate them on this, right? It's your job to be the person here. It- it's not admonishing. He's not telling him he's doing anything wrong. He's telling him, you have this great power in your hand and you need to be the one to teach them how powerful and how great it is. And he doesn't. There's the scene where they're in the hotel getting ready to go meet with the Secretary of War and and Remy Malek and the other um, doctor uh, physicists like interrupt him and are like, please sign this petition. We'll at least tell him not to do it. And and you're right, as you said much, much earlier, Chase. He gives this like half-hearted like, well, you know, some of the other scientists don't like this. But but he's never going to say, no, don't do it. It's his life's work. Right. He's never going to say, yeah, don't drop the bomb I built because, you know, I think in the back of his mind, he, you know, he can probably see like, well, if I say don't do it, I'm not going to do it. They're just going to replace me. And I want the credit for it. It's it's mine. It's what I did. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of understand and see that and, and get why he's doing that. Uh, the, the Niels uh, Bohr line is, you know, the power you're about to reveal will forever outlive the Nazis and the world is not prepared Oppenheimer referring back to a previous quote, you can't lift the stone without being ready for the stake that's revealed. And Bohr responds, we have to make the politicians understand this isn't a new weapon. It is a new world. And Oppenheimer doesn't do that. He never does. He he never convinces the people above him that what they are doing is something incredibly irreversible uh, which makes his, you know, the counterpoint to that Einstein line about, you know, when, you know, they'll give you a, a medal, pat you on the back, telling all is forgiven, and just remember it won't be for you, it'll be for them. When he brings up, you remember when we, you know, thought that the, uh, I remember those calculations, we thought we might start a chain reaction that would destroy the world, and I, Einstein goes, I remember it well, what of it? And Oppenheimer goes, I believe we did, and that's what angers, or, 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 I think just upsets. Like, I don't think Einstein is like angry at Oppenheimer for it. I think he understands the consequences of where they were going, but that's what happened is they changed the world. And and Oppenheimer did not prepare the people above him for it. And he didn't even prepare the people that worked under him for it. Right. We, we have this, this fight between him and, um, and the other physicist who's trying to push, the hydrogen bomb and he you know tries to uh he tries to you know persuade him to stick around by being like okay you go research that and i'll meet with you once a week and we'll talk about uh you know talk about it and we'll figure it out and i i I still want to investigate it but you know he's just there teller he's there just to stop teller right he's gonna tell teller all of his stuff is wrong that none none of it makes sense and then eventually teller finds strauss and strauss agrees with him I I think of it as just he has he cannot accept that people that people who he likes and respects the work of uh, are doing what they want without him being there as well. Um, and I think part of it 
part of a lot of my issue with this is everyone. <laughs> it's like, um, Oppenheimer is a very good special boy and everyone has to tell Oppenheimer how good and special and smart he is and how important he is. And I think that it, it's just, it's to me, it's like constant throughout the movie. I mean, aside from when he's in the tribunal having his uh, security clearance revoked, but we've talked about how Oppenheimer is hollow, but I... It's just still, like, I don't think that the film does a good enough job of, of puncturing this idea of Oppenheimer being this very uh, unique, special uh, genius. Yeah, this film has the subtlety of a brick, um, and every single character in this film has this, like, perfect precognition of where the world is going to go, so they can get these one-liners about, ooh, you're doing a bad Oppenheimer, or... You're going to change the world, Oppenheimer, in a way that, like, no one talks like in the moment, right? Like, the, yeah. it, it, they have, like, they talk this way because they know where the script is going, right? They know the world that ends up coming after, but it's, it's so heavy-handed in what it's trying to do there that it ends up leading to that disconnect, right? Even things that are meant to ultimately criticize Oppenheimer feel like they are glorifying him because they are he is such a unique person that he needs these profound statements to capture ultimately a guy who was good at organizing some scientists to do a thing you know um which is not to say he wasn't an intelligent person he was but like he is not so his role in all of this becomes exaggerated by the hype that every single person in his life assigns to him through these over-the-top premonition statements that are just, again, subtlety of a brick. Yeah, um, which is a lot of my... I, you know, every... It feels like every historical film does it. Like in Titanic, when Billy Zane, like, sees, like, oh, Rose has got a Van Gogh and a Picasso, and he's like, that's garbage. That Picasso will never amount to anything. <laughs> and it's just like, you, you gotta do it. You just gotta do that little, the little cheeky nod, don't you? Oppenheimer has... Just the little sly knowing wink, but it's not. Like, if it's, and if it's one, it's fine. When it's ten, it starts to wear on you. Um... It, it makes the, it makes the other, the, the actual impactful one-liners... Like, you know, you brought up Kitty finding him out in the woods, right? Uh, or even later on in the film when she goes, you think because you let them tar and feather you, the world will forgive you. They won't. It makes those kinds of lines fade a bit into the background because it's just constant one-liners, right? And I think this yeah, is a... it. That's that's what the script felt like. It's just like he wants every line to be... In the unimportant line, and this is a very real criticism, I think, of of anything Nolan has done, is that he has his main characters, right? He has Strauss and he has Oppenheimer, and everyone else is just window dressing. Every other Absolutely. character is window dressing, and you know, bringing up well, the lines exist because further on in the plot, it's alluding to something, or the lines exist to further the plot and that's everything else outside 
of what Killian Murphy and what Robert Downey Jr. are. Everyone else is supporting. Everyone else is there to complement, to supplement, and to elevate those two performances. With the exception of Matt Damon. I am going to give Matt Damon his flowers here because I think he stood out as a character. I think his character stood out. And even though, I, I particularly the sequence that leads into the Trinity test, which we will talk about in a moment because that'll get us into the actual, you know, cinematography aspect of the film. He's there to, to be the foil to Oppenheimer, but that entire exchange, you know, oh, the weather will break at dawn and, and Groves just believing him because Oppenheimer and his brother know this area of New Mexico so well. And, and the scene that is given away in the trailer where he's asking about the gambling that had happened, the side bets. And he goes, well, what is, what was he talking about when he said the atmosphere might burst into flames? And Oppenheimer is like, oh, well, you know, we did some calculations and there is a, you know, near zero chance that we press this button and, you know, we destroy the world. And Groves goes, whoa, whoa, wait, there's a chance we, we, we destroy the world. And he goes, well, the chances are near zero, near zero. Well, what do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. And I'm so angry that that was in the trailer because that would have been such a out of nowhere, like funny moment. And I do mm -hmm. feel like Damon as Groves has some of those like funny moments where it's not, it's not that he's a military general and that he's got this project that he's dealing with. It's that he's a babysitter dealing with these fucking idiots, right? He's dealing with these people that say they're smarter than him. And he's just like, oh my fucking God, you guys not know what security clearance is. You guys not understand what it means not to, you know, whatever, all of these things. Um, so I do want to, I do want to say Matt Damon stood out in a way that Jack Quaid playing the bongos did not. And I, and I want to give him his flowers for that. Uh, did uh, Kristen, did anybody else stand out for you? Was, was there any performance God. that you wanted? Oh, this was a major, this was a major issue for me to the point where it was just like, I don't know why we have like 15 different physicists that each have one to two lines. Like literally Josh, Josh Peck's there. He's the guy that presses the button and he said a line and he has this meaningful look with Oppenheimer. I don't know where that came from. There was no any real, I guess he's the button guy. He's Oppie's button guy. Um, <laughs> he was included in this, like uh, Daniel Craig was included in star Wars as a random stormtrooper. My, yeah, my, except that's like everybody. <laughs> my my roommate made a very good point that there is a point at I which like casting for, um, you know, these kind of celebrity cameos eventually becomes distracting. And Josh Peck was his example. Yeah, like you're not looking is. at him without thinking about it being Josh Peck. It's like okay, I've I've got two. I'll act okay. I Rami Malek. I enjoy. It was Rami Malek essentially being Rami Malek, which is a lot of what he does, but um, I enjoy it, so that's fine. Um, Dane DeHaan as the little odious, I can't remember his name, but he's an odious little toad. <laughs> and that was nice to have someone that wasn't a sycophant. Um, and then I liked Alden Ehrenreich. I thought he did a good job. That was about it. Everyone else just kind of blended. 
it is definitely a, oh, wait, I recognize that dude. Like, I recognize yeah. that dude from that thing, and you, you don't really know. I was... Did, did you fucking yeah. know Gary Oldman was Harry Truman? Yep, I saw that, <laughs> and I was like, of fucking course they got Gary Oldman to be Truman. Like, they just dropped, like, li- like, literally, I was with my coworkers this morning, they had both seen it. And we were just literally scrolling through all of them. They were like, oh, yeah, there's this guy. There's this guy. And it's like, we, there's no impact. We get there's it. There's no impact now. We get it, Christopher Nolan. You have famous friends. Good for you. I I don't think. That, you had a big budget. Yeah, I, I don't think that um, makes. They're not do. They're not being utilized to the best of their ability. I can tell you that much. Yeah, and they can't be when there's so many of them. Which is again, I I, I know I keep harping back on the first hour of the film, but they really try <laughs> to make like this is the Avengers of these physicists, and yeah. every single one of them needs to have a moment. It really and it, felt like that. it destroys the pacing, and it's there because you know none of these actors would have agreed to be on the cast if they didn't get to have their moment. So maybe they don't all need to be these super big actors. Maybe it would be fine actually if a few of them were just you know guys. Um, if they were just Casey Affleck, just some. <laughs> God damn it! I I just <sighs> it's 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 infuriating. I, I will say uh, because we're. Uh, almost an hour into this pod uh, and we haven't talked about it yet. I think it is worth giving the film credit where it's due on the atomic bomb test sequence itself. Um, A lot has been said about how powerful that particular sequence is. And having seen it in IMAX, I can confirm. I, I thought it was really well done. I think the way that it utilized the silence as it hit and we took in these visuals and it matched a lot of the visual, you know, the kind of sound design that we'd seen earlier, the silence followed by the big boom, like they're, they're kind of like the silence stood out um, in comparison to everything that had come in the film before from a sound perspective. And it made the hit of the noise when it finally reached them that much more impactful. Um, I, I think it's a really well done sequence. And I think everyone who's mm-hmm. talking about it from a visual perspective and a sound perspective is absolutely right to highlight it as, as something that uh, if you're trying to decide whether to see this film in theaters or not, that's that's your answer. That sequence will never be as good at yeah. home as it was on the big screen, let alone on the IMAX screen. Um, it's I have... I agree with that. I do have one thing to say. Mm-hmm. I do have a, another criticism. Uh, I felt that the sound mixing with dialogue was not great. I had a hard time distinguishing like what people would say were saying and um, just like getting names. It felt like it was like dialogue was garbled in a way that was distracting and difficult for me. And I I'm a person who likes to use subtitles because of hearing stuff, but um seeing this in theaters and like it was loud enough this was this was a true sound issue with the film that i had chase the reason the silence stood out is because the rest of the movie wouldn't fucking shut up yeah (laughs) and and this is this is my ultimate criticism and you both have touched on such wonderful parts I, i i'm gonna not go criticism first i'm gonna say i believe that the sequence from uh the the gambling in the tent about how big a bomb, how big an explosion it's going to be, 
basically all the way through until the scene where they're in the um in the auditorium with the feet pounding i think is 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 fantastic is is like masterfully done there's so many little you know bits and pieces and nuggets and everything in there um i do think that that auditorium scene with the dialogue and and the sound kind of perfectly exemplifies being too bombastic and having too much noise and too much sound i think we would have gotten the point with just the feet stamping and not with then like the orchestra also on top of it. And I understand in that moment, like the, the words that he's saying there in that speech don't really matter. And that's kind of the point is that he's being drowned out by the, by, you know, his own, own internal voice and his own internal like consequences of his actions. But the, the rest of that, the entire Trinity testing sequence is fucking phenomenal. And I agree watching that in IMAX, that, that bomb exploding hits you with the force that those people were feeling that that shockwave that that is truly what that was um and and that the the dialogue right the the bombasticness that christopher nolan has it's part of why i came out of the film initially being like it's a film only christopher nolan could have written but i don't think he should have directed it because it felt like his worst impulses at times were being dragged out and that he was almost being overly luxurious with some of these like very standout things that he likes to do with films. In particular, this very bombastic, intense soundtrack that covers up, you know, what are supposed to be these key important moments, these very key important lines. Um, but as I've thought about the film, I go, well, Christopher, only Christopher Nolan can direct a Christopher Nolan written film. Like he's the only guy who can do it. And ultimately I, I think he's the only person that could have done this film uh, without it being like dry. And I think the interplay that we get between, you know, Oppenheimer and Strauss, although they don't interact a ton, like with each other directly a ton, it reminds me a lot of the play, uh, the, the interplay that happens in either the movie or the play of Frost Nixon, where it is these two oh. kind of forces, uh, you know, dancing outside of each other. And th there is interaction between them, but their goals and their ideals are sort of, you know, circling each other and around this kind of center point. Um, obviously Frost Nixon centering around Watergate and in this film centering around, you know, the creation of the atomic bomb and, you know, the atomic energy agency and like all of these things that sprout up from the creation of a nuke. Um, I, I think what they are able to accomplish in Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. with the script they're giving given is absolutely fantastic. Um, and I, I completely agree. Downey is going to get a supporting actor nomination and we'll see what happens when we actually see his counter nominees. But I, I think he's given a strong performance that it wouldn't surprise me if he won. Um, that being said, we have now uh, eclipsed the hour mark. We've been podcasting for a couple of hours because we did Barbie before this. So, Kristen, do you have any final thoughts? And, and ultimately, what is your final score for Oppenheimer? Oh, man. Uh, Why did you come to me first? Because you're the guest. Um, okay. 
with, with great power I comes great responsibility. I'm going to give it. I'm sorry, Chase. What did you say? Oh, I, I just said with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. I am become death. It's a story over. <laughs> uh, I hate this. Um, I am, as I said earlier, this is a movie that largely glanced off of me. Um, there were powerful performances. The sequence that you discussed earlier, Walter, it was, it was well done. I think that says it all. Um, I'm going to give it a four. Ouch. Silence. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Chase, go ahead and drive the final nail. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit kinder to this the film than Kristen. I'm going to give it a six. Um, I think the things that it does well, it does very well. Uh, and then there's the rest of it. Um, it's it's always tough with stuff like this, right? Because you also have to take into account that it's three hours, and if it loses you, you're never coming back. And I, I certainly... I, I relate more to the four that Kristen just gave than I do to the nines and tens that I'm seeing from so much of uh, the kind of uh, critic class, if you will. Um, I hate that people are talking about this like this is Christopher Nolan's best film, because it's not, and... It's not. I would oh, hope God. that Christopher Nolan doesn't agree uh, with that that feedback because uh, there's a lot of stuff here that could very easily be improved upon to make a better film. Uh, but you know, I, I I will give it a six because I think the stuff that's good is genuinely good. I cannot give it more than that and be accurate in my um, in the things that that really bugged me about this one. Um, it's a f deeply flawed film, but again. One that if you see yourself as a film critic, as someone who appreciates cinema, you should go watch and make your own opinion on. Uh, it's going to continue to be a, a point of conversation and a point of contention for film critics. Um, and it is worth your time, if only so you know where you end up on it. See, Chase, uh, Kristen, we've already discussed his best film, although very briefly earlier, it's The Prestige. We don't need to look any further. Well, it's the prestige. What a, Memento? Memento's also very good. We can good. also discuss. I, but, I have not um, seen Memento. Yeah. So many films <laughs> we need to watch. <laughs> on so many films. So little time. Chase and I still yeah. haven't watched RRR. A film we've mentioned a hundred times on this podcast. And just I know. Haven't I need to watch it. Gotten to. Uh, but that being said... My my conclusion, and this film in a lot of ways reminded me, potentially it could have turned into another film that we've discussed on the podcast. <laughs> Something that I have, as Oscar bait, that was very much centered around, uh, you know, really trying to emphasize one, maybe two actors, and that was written as this piece that it was very clear it was trying to to focus on character it was trying to focus on dialogue it was trying to focus on winning oscars and being this very movie critic film i mean i've, I've said it before i'll say it again the revenant was oscar bait 
I know to where Chase thought I was going. I wasn't going to go there. I'm going to go to the Revenant. <laughs> and here's the difference. <laughs> I bought into this film. Uh, I do agree the beginning of it can be a little slow at times, but because of my limited knowledge about Robert Oppenheimer, um, I was intrigued. I wanted to know these things. I didn't know that he was such a leftist adjacent person in his earlier years and, and sort of... I understand most of this is all going to be exaggerated because it's a film and they're trying to entertain us, especially when it's three hours long. Um, but it was interesting to learn those things. And while I understand some of the pacing and eh, maybe it's not necessarily necessary, I think some of the humanity that we're supposed to get about Oppenheimer is lost if we don't include it. Um, obviously touching on the sequence with the actual Trinity test itself. And then the Trinity test happened. The scene with him in the auditorium happened. And I was like, okay, cool. Where are the lights? Here come the credits. And then there were still 45 minutes left in the film because now we have to finish the Louis Strauss story, the Robert Downey Jr. story. And I was, I was entranced. I, I absolutely wanted to figure out the Scooby-Doo whodunit of who took J. Robert Oppenheimer out back and shot him and ended, you know, tried to end his career. And when it comes out that it's Louis Strauss, I mean, yeah, of course it's going to be him. Of course it's going to be the guy that's trying to, you know, get into the cabinet. The one thing you didn't want to fucking talk about was Oppenheimer. The one thing you was worried about was motherfucking Oppenheimer. And I love that it was Remy Malik that got to do Remy Malik things and be the, the, uh, be the ending, be the thing, be... You know, if this movie was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, Remy Malik would be erroneous. He'd be the solution. And I do find the sort of sobering image of Killian Murphy playing Oppenheimer at that medal ceremony where he's got the medal, he's got a plate, there's potato salad and salmon on it, as Albert Einstein predicted, looking depressed and accepting that this is not for him it's for everybody else to wash their hands of the martyrdom of j robert oppenheimer um i give this film a nine out of ten i love this film um i really enjoyed it i think the thing i least enjoyed about it was watching an imax other than for the trinity test um but this is a film that i want to watch again when it comes out on streaming that I probably will attempt to watch again. And it is, it has made me ask a lot of questions about like learning more about American history and some of the Twitter threads and articles I've seen coming out discussing the historical inaccuracies have been really fun for me to read. Um, if not really depressing that as America, we treat other people uh, really, really, really fucking shittily. Uh, and with that being said, uh, war is bad. War never changes. Nukes are bad. Um, I think that's the moral of the story here, Kristen. What do you, what do you think? It, if people want to tell you that there is more to this movie than just nukes are bad, where can they find you on the internet? They can find me at Twitter, at Pignolo, on Instagram, on threads. Still looking for that blue sky invite. <laughs> would love one um please don't tell me please like i'm okay with not hearing all the opinions you can send me some that's cool <laughs> not all of them uh, i do think the internet has enough opinions on oppenheimer honestly i don't think uh 
there there are many new takes to be found uh but hey if you think you've got something super unique you can find me at chase wassenaar on twitter find the podcast at rough drafts pod i would love to know are you uh team Kristen, team chase or team walter on this um i i think that the uh conversations online have kind of been fascinating because they've been very focused on certain elements of the film uh and i did not necessarily see my opinion reflected in the conversations that were being had so I, i'm curious if anyone else uh, had that kind of disconnect the way that I think Kristen and I both did. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, we'll be back uh, to do Steam Cleaners, that whole gaming pod that Walter and I do. Uh, I hope you guys were uh, okay with the fact that we did the Barbieheimer back and back, because let's face it, uh, Barbieheimer needed to be taken as the cultural uh, dual threat that it was. But uh, we've got some gaming shenanigans coming down the pipeline, so stay tuned next week for that. Absolutely. I, I I was afraid that if we waited, you know, the two weeks in between that at, at that point we would have exited the zeitgeist and I don't know if I would have been able to convince Chase to actually do a podcast on it. Uh, I knew I wouldn't have been able to wait two weeks to talk about it. I couldn't even wait the three days that I needed to talk about it. Uh, yeah, please, someone invite Kristen to Blue Sky. That way she could forward me an invite because uh, I am still on Twitter. I am uh, at C80s underscore LOL, and I am waiting for everybody to figure out where the fuck they want to go after Twitter, um, because I'm still I'm still holding firm. I'm still there. It's still fucking called Twitter. I don't care that there's an X app logo on my phone. It's fucking Twitter, Elon. Um, but with that being said, come back next week. We will go, get back to Steam Cleaners and our video game shenanigans, as Chase said, and come back in two weeks. Uh, listen, I'm just going to give away the movie. It's turtle time, y'all. Until then, goodbye, Internet. Bye.